Hello everyone, hope you're all having a good day so far. I'm feeling exhilarated to have performed my civic duty, casting my vote. Hope all of you got a chance to get out there, safely of course, or mailed in your ballots or absentee voted. Today is Wednesday, November 4th, 2020. My name is Sanal Patel and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Do you have questions on diagnosis coding to meet compliance? Avoid those compliance risks? Well, I provide some insights in this episode. Welcome to episode nine. This episode discusses joint cybersecurity resources just released last week that coincidentally close out Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I also deliver my trusty tips on compliant diagnosis code capture, and I share a luminous note from Albert Einstein. If you've checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss an episode. Please write in a review and rating on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. Now, a quick disclaimer. Before I get started on the episode, this podcast episode and Nex and Pruitt podcast series do not constitute legal advice but I am fortunate to work with sound healthcare attorneys at Nexon Pruitt. And as their consultant, I have over 10 years of experience in front office, backend, coding, and billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. Again, the opinions and insights throughout are mine alone, and they in no means constitute legal advice. So let's get into newsworthy. On October 28, 2020, a joint advisory was written by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, the CISA, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, the FBI, as well as the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. These federal agencies have credible information of an increased and imminent cybercrime threat by Eastern European criminals known as Wizard Spider, or UNC-1878, to U.S. hospitals and healthcare providers. As of the development of this episode recording on October 29, 2020, the hospitals involved are in California, Oregon, and New York. CISA, FBI, and HHS are sharing this information to provide warning to healthcare providers to ensure that they take timely and reasonable precautions to protect their networks from these threats. These federal agencies have assessed that malicious cyber actors are targeting the healthcare and public health sector, the HPH sector, with TrickBot malware. This TrickBot malware often leads and has led to ransomware attacks through Ryuk ransomware, data theft, and and the disruption of healthcare services some ransomware best practices they've issued are, and they state here, quote, do not recommend, they do not recommend paying ransoms. 
payment does not guarantee files will be recovered. It may also embolden adversaries to target additional organizations, encourage other criminal actors to engage in the distribution of ransomware and or fund illicit activities, end quote. Now, in addition to implementing the above network best practices, the FBI, CISA, and HHS also recommend the following. They tell us to regularly backup data, air gap, and password protect backup copies offline. They want us to implement a recovery plan to maintain and retain multiple copies of sensitive or proprietary data and servers in a physically separate, secure location. They also have user awareness best practices that include, quote, focus on awareness and training. Because end users are targeted, make employees and stakeholders aware of the threats, such as ransomware and phishing scams, and how they are delivered. Additionally, provide users training on, on, on information security principles and techniques, as well as overall emerging cybersecurity risks and vulnerabilities. Ensure that employees know who to contact when they see suspicious activity or when they believe they have been a victim of a cyber attack. This will ensure that the proper established mitigation strategy can be employed quickly and efficiently. Lastly, they have recommended mitigation measures that include, quote, system administrators who have indicators of a trick bot network compromise should immediately take steps to back up and secure sensitive or proprietary data, end quote. Now, this joint advisory was likely developed based on reports from six hospitals across the country that were hit with the Ryuk ransomware which encrypted data on their computer systems and disrupted patient care during already stressed out and overburdened hospitals in a coronavirus pandemic. Further still, the American Hospital Association, the AHA, and the American Medical Association, the AMA, prepared a joint advisory statement as well that I'll read out to you here. It involves cybersecurity risks and a vulnerabilities update. Quote, the COVID-19 pandemic has dramatically changed our way of life and that of the world's, including bringing, an, including bringing a greater number of people together virtually. However, there is one group that views the pandemic as an opportunity to exploit our virtual community for illicit purposes, cyber criminals. At the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a dramatic increase in phishing email campaigns directed toward the healthcare sector. These emails are cloaked under the guise of important information related to COVID-19. They make fake promises of retailers selling N95 masks and raise false hopes for life-saving ventilators, but instead are often laden with malware and malicious links. The pandemic also brought an urgent need to dramatically expand the ability for the physicians and their staff to work remotely and treat patients. Remote virtual private networks or VPNs and other cloud telehealth services have quickly expanded to support telework, telehealth, as well as for remote monitoring of medical devices. However, this expansion also dramatically increased the quote attack surface 
for cyber adversaries who quickly adapted and began probing hospital and physician office networks. Cyber attacks that disrupt patient care service also pose a risk to patient safety. These attacks include ransomware attacks are some of the greatest concerns. Successful ransomware attacks can cripple a healthcare provider by preventing access to medical records and disabling mission critical systems, which result in a delay of care for the patient. There are ramifications for the providers as well. Ransomware attacks cause an interruption and loss of revenue. Remedying and recovering from an attack can also be very expensive. Further, attacks create legal and regulatory exposure and reputational harm. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, we have seen a significant increase in successful ransomware attacks targeting small and large providers. With the onset of EHR and health information technology interconnectivity to support clinically integrated care, we have seen attacks on individual providers cause a disrupting ripple effect among many providers, including physician offices, hospitals, ambulatory surgery centers, labs, pharmacies, and imaging centers. Compounding this issue is the fact that critical cyber vulnerabilities have been discovered in ubiquitous technologies such as network and firewall services used in many hospitals and medical offices. For instance, Palo Alto and the National Security Administration announced a major security flaw which would allow an attacker to bypass authentication on Palo Alto's firewall and VPN services. Additionally, back in July 2020, Microsoft announced the discovery of a 17-year-old vulnerability in its domain name system, or DNS, servers that allowed an attacker to penetrate an organization's network with self-replicating malware that could take over the entire network. Vulnerabilities like these mentioned above underscore that medical practices and hospitals should request routine updates from their health information technology vendors and or their security professionals. Now, this advisory alert also talks about privacy and they state that physicians are responsible for the privacy and security of PHI or protected health information under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, also known as HIPAA. Among other things, HIPAA requires the physicians and hospitals to comply with, with these following requirements. You need to enter into a BAA or a business associate agreement with third parties that use, store, transmit, or otherwise manage the PHI on behalf of the physician or hospital to ensure that PHI is appropriately handled by that third party. You need to be able to conduct a security risk analysis to identify and evaluate what may expose PHI to inappropriate use or disclosure and take steps to address those vulnerabilities. You need to be able to develop and implement policies and procedures to help ensure proper confidentiality and security of PHI. Preparing to come into compliance with HIPAA when the public health emergency, the PHE declaration, ends. So they want us to start preparing from now about what are we going to do when the PHE officially ends. So early on in the pandemic, the Office of Civil Rights, the OCR, announced that it would use discretion or 
it would relax the enforcements in HIPAA uh, for the violations for physicians and hospitals who in good faith utilize telemedicine platforms and applications to connect with their patients. While this was critical to help clinicians quickly adopt into telemedicine, physicians and hospitals should start planning now how they will come into compliance with HIPAA when the PHE declaration ends. And as of right now, that PHE is set to end on January 21st, 2021. Patient trust is central to the physician-patient relationship. While HIPAA compliance may seem onerous and burdensome to some, it is certainly a necessary ingredient into the long-term continued use and success of telemedicine technology. Physicians and hospitals should do all they can to assure their patients that they prioritize their patients' privacy and security of their health information, even during a pandemic. So the AMA and AHA are encouraging physicians and hospitals to have frank discussions with their telemedicine vendors about entering into a BAA and start taking steps to conduct or implement their security risk analysis of the telehealth platform. The AMA and AHA also suggest that we need to be asking our vendors about privacy practices, about their privacy practices for our healthcare vendors. What is their intended data use and security protocols? Many physicians don't realize that a telemedicine platform or application may be low cost or even free because the vendor's business model is based on aggregating and selling patients' data. If possible, consult with your legal team to clarify how video, audio, and other data are being captured and stored by the vendor and those who have access. You can also ask whether the vendor will share the results of third-party security audits, including SOC2 or HITRUST, in addition to the results of their penetration testing. Whether you have been using telemedicine for many months or have just recently adopted that technology, we encourage you to be open with your patients about the potential privacy risks associated with use of telemedicine platforms and applications. We also recommend enabling all available privacy and security tools available when using such applications and using platforms with end-to-end -end encryption. Because if you use unencrypted audiovisual platforms to communicate, it may result in the third parties being able to intercept the communications and tap into the conversation between a physician and a patient." End quote. Now, in my opinion, with all of these security breaches in our space of on-site healthcare amidst a pandemic, also amidst an off-site or work-from-home environment as well, I agree wholeheartedly with these advisory alerts, as well as with CISA's themes for this recently passed Cybersecurity Awareness Month for October 2020. These themes included you connect it, you protect it. Securing devices at home and work, securing internet connected devices in healthcare, as well as the future of connected devices. So let's continue working hard to maintain compliance in cybersecurity and follow these latest federal agency advisory alerts, as well as the advisory alerts issued from the AMA.
and AHA. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. When it comes to medical record documentation and accuracy of diagnoses, you know the compliance risks are high if the OIG has already issued various audit reports on severe malnutrition, inpatient rehab, stroke, and others so far in 2020. Diagnosis codes are important for capturing accurate and not inflated inpatient diagnosis-related groups, DRGs, with CCs and MCCs, as well as capturing accurate and not inflated HCCs, that's your hierarchical condition categories for the Medicare Advantage plans, and most importantly, for capturing the patient's true and accurate medical picture. For best practice for all payers, commercial and government, medical record documentation should include the following items. Patient's name and dates of service on each and every page. All health conditions, including those that coexist at the time of the visit, such as chronic and status conditions. Details to code each condition to the highest degree of specificity. Patient care treatment and or care management for each condition. The provider's signature, credentials, and date signed should be readily visible. Information that is clear, concise, consistent, complete, and legible should encapsulate the patient record. It's the responsibility of each provider to document clearly and precisely for each patient visit. Now, here are some details about stating the diagnosis. The medical record documentation dictates diagnosis code assignments. A diagnosis can only be coded if it is explicitly stated by the provider in the documentation for the current visit. The diagnosis must be stated in the text and cannot be inferred from lab values, medications, radiology reports, patient statements, up and down arrows, or other symbols. When it comes to specificity, documentation must be as specific as possible to code to the highest level of specificity in ICD-10. Absence of this extra level of detail in the documentation could lead to an unspecified diagnosis code assignment. Example, a diagnosis of kidney disease is not as specific as a diagnosis of stage four chronic kidney disease. Other examples of documenting in detail. You should try and include things that are acute and or chronic late effects or sequela, the agent and or the organism involved, the laterality, the anatomical location, lifestyle, associated conditions, manifestations, cause and effect, remission status, comorbidities, severity, complications, the timing of it all, what are the contributing factors? Has there been tobacco use or exposure? What's the episode of care? What trimester of pregnancy are we talking about? 
Then you want to try and have linking verbiage for manifestations. When you're documenting conditions that have a causal relationship, try and use linking verbiage to connect the two conditions together, such as with, secondary to, due to, or associated with. Here's an example, left-sided hemiparesis due to previous stroke. Now, when you're talking about your status of conditions, documenting the terms history of is an indication that the condition no longer exists. Listing historic conditions as current or listing current conditions as historic under past medical history causes many diagnosis codes to be missed or improperly coded. Remember to document chronic ongoing conditions as often as they are in consideration for the patient's care treatment and or current management. So instead of documenting history of diabetes, history of CHF, history of COPD, history of stroke, try and document in the following manner. Patient with diabetes mellitus since 2009, history of CHF, meds, meds compensated CHF, stable on meds, or COPD controlled with inhaler, or patient with history of stroke two years ago. That's much more detailed. When you talk about abbreviations and acronyms, use only standard abbreviations and acronyms. To prevent diagnosis coding errors, try and spell out diagnoses instead of using abbreviations and acronyms, since they may have different meanings or multiple meanings. Legibility. Handwritten charts can be problematic due to the subjective nature of interpretation. If the diagnosis is illegible, it cannot be coded. Then there's the forgotten ones. Frequently overlooked but significant and or permanent status conditions that risk adjust include, but are not limited to, lower limb amputation status, organ transplant status, dialysis status, artificial opening status, HIV status. Then there's your unconfirmed diagnosis. Listing a differential diagnosis as though it already exists or is confirmed, excuse me, or is unconfirmed can lead to coding errors. So terms such as possible, appears to be, and suspected indicate uncertainty. A diagnosis must be confirmed to be coded in an outpatient setting. For an unconfirmed diagnosis, code assignment should reflect the highest degree of certainty, such as signs, symptoms, abnormal test results, or other reasons for the visit. And remember, for our Medicare Advantage plans, documenting all health conditions on an annual basis provides a more complete picture, paints a more accurate picture of the patient's overall health status. These diagnoses may also then risk adjust to help predict healthcare resource use for that patient. Don't forget, the term is actually risk adjust because it is the payer taking on the risk and the scores for risk adjusting are supposed to be used for accounting for the patient's complexity 
quality of care, and associated cost performance measures. And also keep in mind, we are marching forward towards complete value-based models for payment and away from FFS. That means that these systems also look at the risk to determine morbidity of patients as they assess provider efficiency or the measure of resources consumed versus the diagnoses abstracted and assigned. There are around 86 HCC codes for 2020 that are linked to just under 10,000 ICD-10-CM diagnosis codes. Remember, a diagnosis code can be mapped to more than one HCC category, like in our combination codes. Also note, the HCC model is filled with, with our disease hierarchies, like the name says. This means that payment will only be made for the most severe manifestation of a disease. Examples of these types of diagnoses are like our diabetes with chronic complications that maps to HCC-18, or our HIV AIDS, our metastatic cancers, morbid obesity, end-stage liver disease, major depressive disorders, multiple sclerosis, vascular disease, are just a few of the 86 or so HCC codes for 2020. So, by painting all the details of the patient's encounter during their face-to-face -face visit in your documentation, a certified medical coder can abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from Albert Einstein. The world as we have created it is a process of our thinking. It cannot be changed without changing our thinking. So very, very true. And throw in a tiny little virus wreaking its havoc on us can change our thinking even more. I think we continue to shift and seek change in this space of healthcare. We are all keenly aware of the significant impacts COVID-19 has had on our lives, in our work, in our play, in our everything. I know we all had shiny, bright, and happy plans for ringing in 2020, but we will soon have to place our bets again for 2021. What will our New Year's hold in this new climate, this new life with coronavirus sprinkled in? I know we're all continuing to change our ways of thinking, pivoting for the best. I'm happy Albert Einstein's spark still illuminates all our days. So that wraps up today's episode. I'd love to hear your questions and comments. You can always direct message me on LinkedIn or voice message me on the Anchor app. And if you would like to inquire about my consultant services, you can always reach me through my email address at nextandpruitt.com. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all, during our collective life in the time of coronavirus. Hope you join me next Wednesday for episode 10 in the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Thank you for listening in on today's episode, and I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday. If you want more information from me, go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn 
or send me an email at sanalpatel at nextimpruitt.com for all my consulting services in medical coding, auditing, and compliance. Thank you.